Hi y'all, it's Wednesday. And we have a great show for you. We're talking Trump's re-election rally and Bianca Lawson's here. It's Juneteenth and we are celebrating, so we'll see you on the timeline. Woo woo, where's the barbecue, Alex? <laughs> <laughs> Morning Twitter. I'm Zach Stafford. She's Alex Berg, and you are watching AM to DM. Wednesday. 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 We're getting over this hump, y'all. We're so close to the weekend now. We're just gonna like fly straight. I in. know we are almost there. I am just happy that Ugh. it is not Tuesday, but we have so much to celebrate. We really do. Feminista Jones tweeted: Today is Juneteenth, a celebration of the of the day the last enslaved people in Texas were informed that they'd been emancipated, June 19th, 1865. Juneteenth Freedom Day is an American holiday that should be honored by all who believe in liberation. Happy Juneteenth, y'all. Mm. Josh Baracas tweeted, Today is Juneteenth. Seems like a good day to talk about reparations. We may not have been the initial cause of injustice and inequality, but we are responsible now and we are long overdue. Amen, Josh. We are long, long overdue. It's crazy to think that, you know, people think of this day is so long ago, but it's only 150 years only ago. Only 150 years ago. There are buildings ago. that old in New York City. It's really not that long ago at no. all. Um, of course, I think that this is the oldest known celebration mm -hmm. of its kind as well. And so, yeah, I'm glad that we're having a conversation. Yeah, and you know, it's really interesting that this is happening. I believe reparations conversations are happening today on the Hill. Um, and we're beginning to think about what is the legacy of slavery in America. And when we, and now that we need to actually talk about that, how that kind of funnels to now. It's not something that just happened then, but the ramifications really are impacting us every day, everywhere we go. 100%, and you mentioned that there uh, there's going to be a hearing. It's the first hearing in a decade mm. uh, happening in Congress uh, to form a committee um, on reparations and also to explore uh, the idea of giving an apology from the U.S. government. And to me, um, it is just shameful and, uh, you know, unreal that we still, there has not been uh, an apology issue. It's this. kind of mind-blowing because you think we have Martin Luther King Day, we have Black History Month, we have all these attempts to say we are taking care of black folks in America, even though that's not happening. Uh, but you think an apology is so easy for something that's so obviously terrible. I mean, this is slavery, y'all. People were drugged to this country and put into chains and made to work for decades and decades and centuries. So it's yeah. kind of an easy thing to say, oops, not a good thing. Yeah, and of course there is, you know, so much systemic inequality and racism today and you know people don't want to see uh, this as part of the legacy of this mm -hmm. country um, and as part of uh, you know their position in the yeah. world as well and uh, you know one of the things you mentioned is um, you know this is a big conversation happening uh, and making its way into the 2020 election mm -hmm. and Mitch McConnell yesterday uh, was also asked uh, about reparations and I just want to read this quote because it mm. illuminates I think uh, a lot of the way that people think about this which is he said I don't think reparations for something that happened 150 years ago for whom none of us currently live are responsible is a good idea. Uh, but he's missing the entire point. When we talk about reparations, we're not talking about you as a specific person. We're talking about a system that's in place that has, you know, benefited some people, white folks, have benefited greatly from the system, while black people and people of color have not. And reparations is an idea that, you know, to make up from that difference, to make up from that gap that's been established systemically, is to kind of help you catch up. It's kind of help you meet up to where the other folks begin to start or are able to start. So it's not saying that you're guilty of this. It's saying that there was a history that has happened and we need to acknowledge it and try to fix it. Exactly. And, uh, you know, there is a precedent for reparations. In the 1980s, uh, the U.S. gave money to descendants 
descendants of Japanese Americans who were interred. Um, you know, of course, uh, Holocaust survivors um, have also received reparations from yes. Germany. So this is something that we can do. It's not a new thing. Not, not a new, new thing. thing. Well, let's take it to the timeline. Why wait for the government for reparations? Send us your Venmo or Cash App names and let's get the money flowing, y'all. Tweet us using the hashtag AM to DM. Last night, President Trump made a not-so-surprising announcement in Orlando. Bloomberg tweeted, Trump formally announces his 2020 re-election bid and asks crowd to choose between two campaign slogans, Make America Great Again or Keep America Great. However, it was not all celebration. BuzzFeed News tweeted, protesters said it felt like a, quote, slap in the face that Trump chose to hold his first official campaign event in Orlando, less than a week after the three-year anniversary of the Pulse massacre. Mm. Joining us today is BuzzFeed News reporter Nidhi Prakash, who was at the rally last night. Good morning, Nidhi. Hello, good morning. Tell us about the event. We hear it also included a daytime festival. Right, so they said that it was, uh, it was called 45 Fest. <gasps> Um, basically it was a big open space near the arena where there were speakers, uh, Donald Trump Jr. was there at one point. And it was basically like the several streets around the arena that was shut down, uh, from the morning, I think, uh, before, before the rally and people were kind of like lining up for ages to try and get in and stuff. I didn't particularly see a lot else on the streets. Like there wasn't, you know, it, when you think of a festival, it wasn't exactly that, but definitely there were just like a bunch of people waiting to get in. What did Trump supporters tell you about his 2020 bid when you spoke with them? I mean, they were just super pumped. I mean, a lot of people had actually traveled a really long way to come here for it. I spoke to one couple that had come from New Mexico and then another couple that had come from Arizona. So, you know, I mean, I think there were definitely people from all over the country that had come here just for this specifically. There were obviously also uh, locals from just outside Orlando and other parts of Orlando as well. Wow. Fascinating. That's a long trip. So mm -hmm. what is the difference between his 2016 messaging and this new one he launched last night for 2020? So this is interesting. It seemed like he was treading over a lot of the same ground. I mean, one of the big chants that took off during the rally was lock her up. So he really started out his 2020 bid again, circling back to Hillary. Mm. Hmm. And the Orlando Sentinel published a letter from their editorial board before the event stating that they do not endorse uh, Trump for 2020. Um, was that a sentiment that was reflected by other locals that you met? Definitely. In the couple of days leading up to the rally, um, you know, Orlando didn't vote for Trump in 2016. And in the midterms, it also went blue and supported Democrats. Um, there are, of course, some Trump supporters in Orlando. There were definitely one or two in the line who I spoke to. Um, but, uh, you know, as a whole, the city is pretty progressive. Mm. And the Pulse nightclub survivors were outside of the rally protesting. Can you tell us what that event looked like compared to Trump's? Yeah, so they were just sort of like about two or three blocks around the corner from the arena. And basically, they were holding a rally right outside a gay bar. Um, and it was, you know, LGBTQ folks and then also Latino community organizers. And they were just getting together in something that they were calling the Love Fest. And, you know, they you know, were kind of angry that Trump was here and not addressing the Pulse Massacre, given that the anniversary, the three-year anniversary, was just last week. Now, uh, another group that was there, and I saw this all over my Twitter timeline last night, were the Proud Boys. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what they were doing there? So I actually arrived at the rally and immediately ran into them, walking down a street, oh, wow. yelling and blaring their horns, which was a little confronting. Um, they, I mean, it didn't seem like it kind of devolved into actual violence, but they were they're definitely there kind of yelling at people and trying to provoke people. Um, from what I saw, the local law enforcement that was on the ground was kind of pretty aware of them being there and was kind of trying to make an effort to separate them off um, from counter-protesters. Mm -mm. So tell us about inside. It looked quite packed, which I know Trump likes, but was it actually 20,000 people present? 
So I will tell you that, you know, they'd predicted that there were going to be what something like 70,000 and that there wasn't going to be, you know, that there were going to be people spilling out onto the streets and all of that. Um, The line was pretty much done well before the rally started, which suggests to me that, you know, there wasn't that much overflow, at least from the stadium, which I think the max capacity of that stadium is 20,000. If you look at some of the footage, there were a couple of empty seats in there. That's, you know, my best guess. (laughs) Okay. Okay. And when is the next event for him going to take place? I mean, this is an ongoing thing, right? Like, I think this is as much as they called it the relaunch, the re-election bid. It's, he's kind of been having events that's never really stopped since the 2016 yeah. election. So I think that just keeps rolling on. Well, this is his favorite time of the year, I guess, every day. Yeah. Well, Nidhi, thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez found herself at the center of a hot-button discussion after posting a video calling ICE detention centers concentration camps. She tweeted, This administration has established concentration camps on the southern border of the United States for immigrants, where they are being brutalized and with dehumanizing conditions and dying. This is not hyperbole. Backlash ensued from the far right, but many on Twitter rushed to defend AOC's statements. George Takai tweeted, I know what concentration camps are. I was inside two of them in America. And yes, we are operating such camps again. Mm. Joining us today to walk us through what happened is courthouse reporter Adam Klasfeld. Good morning, Adam. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So what prompted AOC to call the ICE detention centers concentration camps yesterday? Well, if you look at one of the things that she tweeted was a uh, essentially an article published in the Washington Post by historians talking about the term concentration camps and unpacking uh, the history of it, that it's a it's a term, it's a phrase that preceded uh, the what many people, what it, it preceded the Nazi death camps. And there were, uh, and after the Nazi death camps, there were other concentration camps in the Boer War. Uh, George, you mentioned George Takei uh, referred to Japanese internment camps as concentration camps. So she was sharing an article with a much more kind of expansive uh definition with historians sort of educating the public about the history of the phrase concentration camps. Hmm. What were the uh, reactions and other responses to what AOC had to say? Well, there was a lot, a a big firestorm ensued. A lot of people uh, who don't know the kind of fuller history of the phrase took offense at uh, the, what they found to be an inflammatory comparison. Uh, and there was a lot of ignoring what historians were saying about the history of the term, and uh, and that extended again before and after the Nazi death camps. It was taken to mean a kind of one-to-one comparison in which it was never intended. Mm. And what do supporters of the ICE detention center refer to these places, if not concentration camps? Uh, there, the commonly used term is detention centers. Um, that, in terms of uh, uh, there, there has been in in terms of what ICE calls them, the mo- the most commonly accepted phrase for use in the press, we we use the term detention centers, um, and that's the most commonly uh, used phrase in describing it in in the press. 
as a Jewish person, one of the reasons why we would call these things concentration camps is because we always say never again. Uh, Absolutely. When it it comes to um, the Holocaust, it's important to name these things. Um, What were Mm -hmm. some of the other reactions uh, that you saw from Jewish people and the Jewish community? Well, one thing that I pointed out when this controversy sort of took off is that uh, when there was family separation litigation uh, last year, last June specifically, um, there was the Oregon Jewish Museum and the Center for Holocaust Education had submitted a sworn declaration in federal court where Uh, where the director of that museum said she's been speaking to survivors, and many of them were troubled um, at what they said, uh, reminded them of their lived experiences. um, And it was in that spirit, the director of this museum said that she uh, submitted that declaration to the court. A Holocaust survivor submitted a sworn declaration to the court uh, saying that it felt like the 1930s. And so it was the kind of learning from history and saying that never again uh, means never anywhere and you don't need to wait until um, it gets as, until there is a Dachau or until there is an Auschwitz, that any time that a large group of people is being dehumanized and being kept in uh, terrible conditions, that's the time to raise one's voice. And uh, it's not equating things or dishonoring history to, uh, it, it, it would be dishonoring history to wait for a kind of one-to-one parallel in order to take action or to uh, raise alarm. Mm. And how is ICE defending itself from this framing of what they're doing? Uh, the ICE has come out. There was, a, I believe, a, a video that uh, that the that ICE tweeted out uh, in basically taking on uh, what AOC said and saying that it's offensive, that it's uh, that they disagree with the comparison, uh, and um, AOC responded to that too. Uh, in her response was, "People who run concentration camps." Uh, tend to uh, not call <laughs> them uh, by that name and to, uh, and to kind of downgrade what is going on there. Mm. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Later on in the show, Chantal sits down with Bianca Lawson. But up next, we have your fire tweets. Stay tuned. Welcome back. It is time for Fire Tweets. Let's just get right into these, okay? Yeah. Woke is bloke, you tweeted, y'all don't know what it was like before memes. One joke from Billy Madison had to last you like five years. (laughs) So true. I still think about the Waterboy movie where it was his Waterboy. He did that for years and wouldn't let it go. But now memes, you get to have that joy every day and it's no longer just an inside joke with your friends. Yeah, for real. I mean, like, gosh, I remember being in middle school and, like, that was all that you had. You just had to, like, keep the joke going and going and going. Thank you, technology. God, we sound like old people. We really do. Mm, I'm not old yet, though. (laughs) Javeo Young-White, you tweet it. People who grew up with bathrooms connected to their rooms are a different kind of privileged. I'm going to leave the set. You're going to leave the set? Why are you going to leave the set, Zach? I may have grown up with a bathroom attached. 
which may explain a lot about me. Yes, how has this impacted who you are today? I'm a monster. <laughs> I'm going to be alone forever because I think I deserve to be alone forever. <laughs> because bathrooms. All right. Mm -hmm. tweet it. When I make a joke online, please don't add to it. It's full. Uh, it's just it's just this thing of like people will take a joke and then try to like improv on top of it and like switch out the subjects or the adjective and keep building and building. It's like let's just have one nice thing. For real. It's fine. Just like, let it go. If it's already a funny joke, just let it be. God. Let the joke live. This is why y'all are so unhappy these days. Twitter. <laughs> Micah, you tweet it. In this thread, I will break down. <laughs> you really thought this was funny. I did. This struck a chord with Like every time, because it's kind of like, threads do feel kind of like, not manic, but like this is like this way in which you're like, and this, and this, and this, and this, and spiral, and spiral, and spiral, and now our president does it, and it's like a lot. Yeah. It and is also, a lot. I don't know how to thread that well. I don't. get made fun of for that. Sometimes I misdo it, and just, so maybe I'm coming from a place of jealousy, Twitter. It's the not, truth is, is revealed. Normal. normal. All right, tweet of the day. Yep. From Amanda Rosenberg. Want to be rich enough so I can hold my laptop like this? <laughs> wealth. Yes, wealth. wealth. Yes, and he wealth. is wealthy. He is. He is. He... Holding his laptop like a book. Like if he yeah, drops it and like, it shatters. What's a thousand dollars? Exactly. What is a thousand dollars? Yeah. It's yeah. a flatter. It's fine. I, I, I feel like you're going to be like, do you hold your laptop like that? No. I put it in my backpack. I don't walk around the streets with it like that. In well, LA, maybe I did. You don't walk around the streets here with your laptop like that, uh -huh. but um, you do walk around the streets with your <laughs> iPhone, iPhone 10, not in a case. We're not talking so. about how my phone is, you know, she's on prep. It's <laughs> Let's take it to the timeline. Twitter, what's the wealthiest thing you've ever seen someone do? Tweet us using the hashtag AM to DM. What's the wealthiest thing you've ever seen someone do? Uh, decorate the Christmas tree with Tiffany and company ornaments. That is really like- This is pure wealth. A rich person's flex just because what happens if the ornament falls down? Can it shatter? Like, you They're know. like, screw it. I have Tiffany's on the ground. Who? Ma what matters? Well, the thing that also gets me about this is that I haven't seen a Christmas tree with <laughs> Tiffany ornaments and you have, so. Wow, we, we yeah. are learning a lot here. We are. Well, up next, we're talking about working conditions at Facebook, but stick around because Queen Sugar actor Bianca Lawson is here. Mm. Welcome back. Here's a treat from Casey Newton. Today, three former Facebook content moderators are going on the record to talk about working conditions at their site in Tampa, Florida. Their office was filthy and their work was grim. Last year, a moderator had a heart attack and at his desk and died. Casey Newton wrote this story for The Verge and he joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. So in May, you visited Facebook's Tampa moderation site. What did workers there tell you? Well, they said that the workplace is typically very filthy. The, the story is quite gross. You know, they would find bodily waste all over the bathroom. They would find it on their desks. Uh, they described multiple cases of sexual harassment, of fights breaking out in the office, just basically an environment in which it's very difficult to get the job of moderating Facebook content done. Mm. Your story begins with an anecdote of a worker dying at the Tampa facility. How is his story emblematic of the conditions for workers there? Well, you know, it's it's obviously tragic that he died. We tried to learn more about his, his you know, previous health conditions. You know, we, we can't say that 
you know, he died because he did the job. But what we can say is that when it happened, multiple managers were telling people not to talk about it to their subordinates because they worried it would harm productivity on the site. And that gets at a real issue here, which is that these moderators are under such pressure to get a perfect accuracy score or otherwise be fired. And it just creates all kinds of bad consequences in the workplace. I want to get a little bit more uh, context here. Can you talk about what is this company cognizant and about how many moderators uh, does it employ? Yeah, so um, in 2017, Facebook announced it was going to expand its workforce of moderators around the world. It now has about 15,000 of them, and the vast majority are hired through these massive professional services firms like Cognizant is one, Accenture, Genpact is another. And they are now at more than 20 sites around the world, uh, and their job is to decide what uh, stays up on Facebook and what has to come down. Mm, And how much are these workers paid for their labor? Their job right now starts at $15 an hour, which is less than $30,000 a year. That's in North America. Facebook has said it will raise that rate by $3 an hour, but that raise isn't likely to take effect until next summer. Can you talk about the kind of material that they're responsible for moderating and the kind of impact it had on some of the folks that you talked to? Sure. And if you're a normal Facebook or Instagram user, you know, this may shock you, but people upload absolutely the worst stuff to these networks. I'm talking about beheadings, murders, torture, mutilation. And many of the workers that I spoke with are exposed to that on a regular basis. Uh, Even if they have a history of uh, mental health issues, anxiety, depression, typically their managers don't even ask about that. You think that might be something they'd want to know about before they put someone in a a queue of content like this. Mm. And how is Cognizant responding to your reporting on this very grim situation? Well, they say they they do their absolute best to create a a safe and clean work environment. Uh, They said that based on some of the issues I raised, they were going to, again, talk to their workers about trying to to keep the workplace clean. Uh, But it seems to me that the steps they've taken so far have not created that kind of clean and safe environment you think would be necessary to do a good job moderating content. What about Facebook? How did Facebook respond? So, you know, Facebook um, essentially, you know, put up a blog post a couple months ago where they laid out everything they're doing for the workers. And I will say there is a team of of people inside Facebook who understand these problems and they're working to build better programs in the future. Two two things I would highlight. One is they want to do a better job screening employees so they are able to identify employees who might not be a good fit for this kind of role. And they also want to provide uh, post-employment support. So after you leave this job, even if you're fired, maybe you'd be able to get some counseling. These things are tricky to pull off. There's no telling whether they will happen. But I can tell you if they did, it would raise the standard for contractors across the industry. Mm. And what do workers want to see come out of this situation? You know, what what they want most, Zach, is just for their stories to be heard. You know, these folks signed 14-page non-disclosure agreements in which they pledged not to discuss their work. There are some good things that those NDAs do. They arguably keep them safe. But it means that there is a curtain that is pulled over all of the working conditions at these sites. So most of the worst stories never come out. So what the moderators who went on the record with me today told me was they just really want people to understand the day-to-day toll of doing this job and hear it in their own words and, and see it on their faces. Wow, well, it's quite a story. We Ooh. just tweeted it out from the AM to DM account. If you, uh, if our viewers want to read it, Casey, thank you so much for joining. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. 
And we reached out to Facebook, who gave us this statement, quote, we work with our content review partners to provide a level of support and compensation that leads the industry. There will inevitably, inevitably be employee challenges or dissatisfaction that call our commitment to this work and our partners' employees into question. When the circumstances warrant action on the part of management, we make sure it happens. And here's a statement from Cognizant. Like any large employer, Cognizant routinely and professionally responds to and addresses general workplace and personnel issues in its facilities. Our Tampa facility is no different. Cognizant works hard to ensure a safe and clean and supportive work environment for all of our associates. Mm. Well, up next, I'll be talking to March for Our Lives activists Lauren Hogg and Jordan Harp. Stay tuned. Last month, March for Our Lives activist and Parkland survivor Lauren Hogg tweeted, Only two days left of school, and I just had to lay on the floor of my classroom for a code red drill. What a great way to spend the last week. Lauren Hogg joins me now, as well as Jordan Harb, the national field strategist and executive director of the March for Our Lives Arizona chapter. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Well, Lauren, I want to start with uh, that tweet from you. You just finished the first school year at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas since the shooting. How are you and your classmates doing? Um, unfortunately, we really have not received the resources that we need mental health-wise at my school. Um, so I've seen some really awful um, experiences that a lot of my friends have had with regards to mental health. Um, so frankly, we're not doing well, but the media kind of left my school as it seems to do at every mass shooting, most tragedies. Um, but we're, we're doing okay, but we just aren't receiving the resources that we need. Hmm. How engaged uh, are the other students in the March for Our Lives? Um, March for Our Lives, over the last um, year and a half, we've actually built out our chapter system, as Jordan can expand more on. We have over 200 chapters across the country now, and we work every single day to continue our work. The march didn't end on March 24th. It continues every single day. Um, and we're continually more and more engaged. Uh, but a lot of us are going to college. So we're just rearranging a little bit, but we're doing well. Hmm. Now, Jordan, you're part of the Arizona chapter of the group. Why did you want to get involved? I actually got involved um, because I was in D.C. the day of the shooting, actually, and I was meeting with my senator. And I remember really specifically my teacher uh, asked him and called him out and really said, I, I have a fear every day that my students are sa aren't safe and I can't protect them. What are you going to do? And that senator, while um, the news was coming out about the shooting, really told us, you know, there's nothing that we can do. We don't act in emotion. And that's just not how things work here. And it was really jarring to me to see my senator say that, like directly to my face the day of the shooting. And as soon as I saw um, students taking action, I, I felt compelled that I had to join because Clearly nothing was going to happen if we continued with the status quo of what was happening. Mm, clearly nothing was going to happen. Well, you've actually, you've achieved some success in Arizona. Can you talk about what you've been able to mm -hmm. do there? Yeah. So uh, in Arizona, it's a um, controlled, it's controlled uh, all Republican. Is, um, a lot of them are NRA endorsed and it's very controlled by the gun lobby. Um, but we've been very successful in mobilizing young people across the state to really push the topic of gun violence prevention um, to the to the forefront of conversations, even within the even within the side that doesn't necessarily want to talk about it. Um, we've done 
large 500 to five to 600 person civil disobedience at our Capitol where um, hundreds of students occupied for over eight hours until police had to drag us out. And eventually we mobilized um, registering over 5,000 students to vote. And we wrote our own bill this session, which passed the Senate unanimously. Um, and although it didn't get through to the governor's office, we were actually able to push a lot of uh, our policies at the school board level, um, which included uh, instead of funding armed guards and SROs and putting guns on campus, instead using that money for counselors and mental health. Um, and we've had a lot of success in the past year. Um, just in the 2018 election, Arizona uh, flipped in the Senate almost entirely because young people turned out to vote. At Arizona State University, there were students in line for hours after the polls closed because so many kids came out to vote. And those last ballots that were getting counted after the election were the reason that it flipped. And really, young people were the reason this topic was being talked about in such a deep red state. It's why the Senate flipped and these successes are being shown in chapters across the country. In California, we have a lobby day happening right now. Colorado just passed a piece of legislation um, and states across the country are talking about this issue because young people in a part of our 300 chapters uh, network across the country are going out and forcing this topic on people who don't want to talk about it. Well, you mentioned uh, registering new voters, turning out for the midterms. Lauren, the first Democratic presidential debates are later this month. Which candidates have you seen talking about gun violence prevention in a way that you like or even dislike? Yeah, so one of the great things that we've seen already, even before the first debates, is that gun violence prevention has been one of the key points on a lot of the candidates' um, missions going into the election because it's what people care about going forward. Um, of course, as an organization, we don't support this candidate over that candidate, but we're really, really thrilled to see different people like like Elizabeth Warren talking about gun violence prevention. People to judge. Um, I've seen a lot of stuff that he's coming out with, especially on his platform, social media platforms talking about it. Um, but going forward, it's an issue that a lot of young people care about. So as times get closer to 2020, we're going to want to see a lot more um, of the people running talking about gun violence prevention because if they want young people to vote, they need to talk about things that we really as young people care about. Um, and gun violence prevention, unfortunately, has become one of the top issues that we have to care about every single day. Um, so we'll definitely see more and more of that going forward. Well, Lauren, I want to bring up something that you tweeted yesterday, which was, quote, I turned 16 eight days ago, and all I have to say is that age is not an excuse when it comes to using racial slurs. Um, what do you make of the conversation surrounding your uh, fellow student, Kyle Kashev, whose admission to Harvard was rescinded uh, this week? Absolutely. I mean, I, I didn't want to write a ton about that or anything like that because I feel like it kind of distracts from what actually matters, which is saving lives. Um, and... Personally, I think it's important to remember that he, we have to recognize the privilege at hand here. I mean, I've seen it talked about in The View. I've seen it talked about in different news organizations. And I think if it was anybody else who wasn't, just didn't happen to be a white male, they wouldn't be getting the same type of airtime that he's gotten. Um, but I just, I, I meant what I said, what I tweeted, that he kept on saying that he was 16 and that was an excuse. And of course, we all make mistakes. But... I was 14 when I started lobbying on the Hill. I was 14 when I started organizing with March for Our Lives. I just turned 16 eight days ago. I'm the youngest co-founder of March for Our Lives. And 
honestly, when it comes to age, I don't think it's an excuse if you're 16 to be using such vulgar terms, but it's really unimportant to what I think is the true mission of March for Our Lives or any other movements that have come out of Douglas, my high school. Well, you mentioned uh, privilege, and I want to read this tweet from March for Our Lives. There is a huge intersection between the LGBTQ plus community and the work here at March for Our Lives, though through our Pride t-shirts, we will be donating $2,500 to the Trevor Project. This organization provides a national 24-hour confidential suicide hotline for queer youth. Jordan, March for Our Lives has made an effort to be an intersectional movement. Why is that an important approach? It's important because the solution to gun Uh, silver, um, silver key. It's not going to be solved with one thing. It's, it's. We're going to have to work to keep guns out of the hands of those that are going to hurt each, each other. But we're also going to have to come at it with the fact that gun violence is also suicide. It's also police brutality. It's, it's a lot of it's systemic things in our judicial system that incarcerate people. Um, violence in our in our society is not necessarily one specific thing and we have to talk about that in order to make sure that we're saving saving lives that are lost every single day as someone a part of the lgbtq community i know how hard it is and how much of a struggle it is and i've i personally have been through times in my life where suicide has been something i've thought about and suicide is something that is very nuanced and talking about it in this intersectional way is how we're going to solve the problem. We need to put resources into all of these different solutions in order to make it so that people can feel safe in our, in our country. Well, uh, Lauren and Jordan, thank you so much for taking the time to open up about such a sensitive topic. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And up next, Chantal is sitting down with Bianca Lawson. I'm Chantal Rochelle, and this is The Sit Down. I'm here with actor Bianca Lawson, star of Queen Sugar on OWN. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. How are so, you? I'm good. It's good to see you. Good to see you. So season four of Queen yes. Sugar is here. Going into the season, were there any questions that you wanted to have answered for your character, Darla, that you were just like, okay, what is she going to, we're going to see from her this season? Yes, and it is happening. Okay. Uh... I think we find out in 4.10 or 4.11, so I can't say, but like the very thing that I was like, will this be answered is answered. Okay, so we're going to get there. And it's major. Okay, it's It's major. major. It's a major. So we're going to be like, wow. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Mm -hmm. tell us, when we look at Ralph Angel and Darla, where do you stand? Do you want to see them get back together? (laughs) Like in your ideal world, (gasps) what's their future look like? My ideal world? Um, You know... I am a romantic, so I feel like they've both gone through so much Mm -hmm. together. Um, They've grown up together. Um, There was so much, I think, anger because there was so much Mm -hmm. love, Mm -hmm. you know, because of what happened and her, you know, uh, having to not be there for their child. But I like to believe that if something is real, then even if there are breaks, even if there are obstacles, in the end, if it's real— and they come back together. So I I think there's real love there. I I, I believe in it. I I see it. I mean, people have a lot of strong emotions when it comes to Darla. One minute, like, they want to shake her, like, Darla, why? And then the other, like, thank you, I see you. Thank you for for Mm -hmm. seeing me telling my story. So Mm -hmm. what's been, like, the craziest fan reaction or encounter or most moving encounter you've ever had with a fan? Um, I've had a lot of really moving encounters, actually. Just, I mean, so I was at um, the airport in Houston at baggage claim. Mm -hmm. And... 
a woman turns to me and goes, has anyone told you you look like Darla? <laughs> and I was like, like actually, I am Darla. <laughs> and she was like, you know, she started crying, and she's like, you know, I was Darla. Like, that was my story. And, you know, she told me that she had been clean for 10 years now oh. and, um, and that she doesn't talk about her past mm-hmm. um, with, you know, in her new life, her new job. I think she's like in medical school now. She Everything, it turned around for her. But she was like, I don't ever talk about it unless I'm like, you know, in my 12-step group or my sponsees. But I wanted to tell you because I never get to see my story wow. um, as a black woman told in a way that... Uh, isn't heightened or stereotypical, but that these are like the real actual nuances and textures of my experience. Absolutely. You're bringing such truth to the storytelling. It's really beautiful to see. Thank you. Your co-star, Kofi Cerebo, said that he recently mentioned that the, yeah. the heavy storyline, it really actually caused him to mm-hmm. crash and like really go through it emotionally. Mm-hmm. What, so what have you found that you've had to do decompress and to basically detach yourself from this character? Because you're giving your all into Darla. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I used to always feel like I was the kind of person that you know, was it method? And I just use mm-hmm. imagination. It's the character, not me. And I have that separation. And yeah. when I go home, I go home. But it could be that the intensity and the depth of the character, mm-hmm. or it could be that instead of doing like a movie for two months, like we, you know, we'll shoot for like six months yeah. for like, you know, four seasons. So you're living this person. Um, after last season, I will say, I, I crashed a little bit too. Like mm-hmm. I just kind of got to LA got in the bed and kind of didn't yeah, want to get out done, of the bed. Yeah. And so it does creep up on you. Mm. I think sometimes you can think that it's not uh, affecting you, but your body feels it. Your body, it's in like your muscle memory, yeah. your your heart. Um, revisiting things that might be traumatic to kind of really pull yourself down into that grief. Um, because as an artist, you want it to be as real as possible, mm. you know. Um, but what do I do? I... I tried. I really, really forced myself to try to, like, just do fun things. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you just have to be honest about, like, okay, this is how I'm feeling right now. It's still living inside of me for a minute. And I'm going to not pretend that it's not and, like, repress it. Because I think when you try to repress how you truly feel and what you're truly going through, um, that's when you then crash or get overwhelmed or it comes out in other weird ways. So you let it come to head. You let it, you look yeah, through it. Yeah. yeah, I tried to be, instead of saying, oh, no, no, mm-hmm. I'm fine, you know, actually be like, you know what? Maybe I do need a little bit of a minute. Yeah. Maybe I do need to kind of just, you know, decompress and chill and do self-care and say no to some things for a minute while I kind of get my mind out of Darla and into Bianca. Um, there was one of our PAs actually said to me after one scene we shot for this season that hasn't aired yet, we were walking back to the trailers and he goes, um, does it do something to you to like re-traumatize yourself over and over again? <laughs> to like really go there over yeah. and over again? I was like, you know, I don't think so, but we'll talk in like yeah. a year. But I mean, but you know, it's also such a gift though to get to play characters like these because yeah. we don't always, you don't always get that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I... It does stay with you a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. And you have amazing support with Ava DuVernay, queen director, creator of this show. Yeah. And she's also assembled an all-women directing mm-hmm. crew. Mm-hmm. What's that energy and dynamic like on set compared to other sets you're a part of? I mean, okay, so for instance, I got a beautiful email just this morning for next episode's director just saying like, 
I, what do you need? How do you like to work? Mm. You know, I love Darla, you know, email me anytime, call wow. me. Where do you feel like her head is at? Like just really, it feels like um, a real personal touch mm-hmm. with each one, like mm-hmm. a real sense of like a real human connection. Yeah. Not like, okay, we're on this job and hey, what's up? And do this and do that and here's your mark. It's like a but yeah, it feels like a real family. It feels like uh, these are people that really deeply mm-hmm. care and there's real compassion, there's real empathy and there's real feeling in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and like they're your friends, you know? Yeah, I can call them. <laughs> yeah, know, some I talk guys. to all the time. Wow. All the time, you it's know? family. Yeah, yeah. For sure. A, a lot of people may not know this about you, but I know this. You really love astrology. Like, it is your thing. <laughs> I do love You astrology. love su- sun, <laughs> moon. I'm just me. finding out about yeah. sun, moon, cabins, houses, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. So what brought you to astrology and like made you like really get into it? So, okay, so when I was a kid, my dad, because he's a Pisces like I am, and he would say, you know, to be a Pisces, because we're the last sign of the Zodiac, it means that you've already incarnated as all the other signs. Yeah. We're like the culmination of all of the signs, yeah. um, which gives us our chameleon-like quality and the fact that we can kind of do anything. We're like water. Um, so he would just say that kind of like a funny thing. But as a kid, I was like, yeah, yeah, I've been all the signs. But, uh, but I didn't really know that much about it deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had roommates. And they were really into astrology. Like, we'd be watching, like, CNN, and they would, like, be like, oh, yeah, that anchor, she's a Scorpio, or he's a Sag. Like, what? Like, what? how do you know this? Like, they were really into wow. it. Wow, so you could just read it. Yeah, so I was like, okay, I'm going to do a little thing. I'm going to look at all the signs. I'm going to see what the characteristics are of each sign. And I was like, okay, my next boyfriend has to be Leo. Okay. Do you know, yeah. two days later— you had a Leo boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Wow, the universe. Isn't that weird? A universe. So what signs are you just like, nah, I'm avoiding you? I don't have an, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's a bad or a good sign. I think it's the person. I think that uh, sun signs are great, but it's your whole chart. Mm. You know, it's your rising, it's your moon, it's whatever, you know, your Venus, yeah. your Mars. Um, and how that meshes with somebody else. I, it's, it's a weird thing because on the one hand, I want to say, oh, it's just like a fun hobby, right? Yeah. But I, I will do, I will read stuff. I will do people's charts. And I'm yeah. like, what's, give me your. Do you read charts too? I do. Oh, you're I, out do. Here. I do. Universe, it's working through you. <laughs> I do. For sure. Do. And it tends to be really spot on. Well, your family, that dynamic that they laid for you to know what you know now. I mean, you come from an iconic family. Your father being Richard Lawson, King, who's also ageless. I'm just like, how? How? Yeah, like, he's your, ageless. your genes. I just, I don't understand it. So tell me what, like, if you could have your ideal project with your family, what would you do with them? I know you've worked with your dad before in the past. I have. I've worked with my dad a couple of times where he's played my father. Okay. Um, but I always say this and he laughs, but like, I actually would love to direct my dad and my mother in a remake of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Mm. Like, I would love to do that. Oh, that'd be Would you direct it? Mm. Would, you, would you be in it as well? No, no, no. Okay, just no. behind the scenes. Yeah, okay. yeah, just directing them. I love it. Yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah. Speak it in the universe. <laughs> Manifest it like the universe. Like, it <laughs> happen. I love it. Yeah. Well, Bianca, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Congrats thank on the you. new season. I love thank it. You. Darla's my girl. I'm rooting for her. Thank you. All right, all right, y'all. You can watch season four of Queen Sugar on Wednesday nights on OWN. Up next, Alex and Zach are talking about your gay hell. Welcome back. This is from A, Alex, to Z, Zach, where we chat about a topic on our timelines. Mm, And they get us going. Here's a tweet from yours truly. I came out as someone who can't stand circuit parties. 
What's your personal version of gay hell? Mm. Well, first of all, thank you for your bravery. Uh, you're proud for of coming me. out as someone who someone did treat me parties. very passive aggressively and said, <laughs> "Oh, it must have been so hard." And I was like, "You know what? It's a joke. We're moving on." Mm-hmm. But yesterday we had a conversation about gay hell, we which did. is a place in America. It is. it is in Michigan, and we wanted to know from you all. What is your version of gay hell? And let me tell you, my Twitter was on fire. You girls have feelings. Yes. Lots and lots and lots of feelings. So let's jump into some of the yes, feelings. Yes, let's do it. Here's a tweet from Ken Schwenk. A gay cruise, can you imagine? A floating circuit party with bad food that you can't leave. God, that just took my gay hell to next level. Uh, like yeah. Dante's Inferno has seven levels. That was level seven. Stuck <laughs> on a boat. Oh, God. I'm sensing, yes. Well, I'm sensing a theme, which is like, you know, being stuck in places. Queer people don't like being stuck in places. No, they don't. We kick no, that closet door down don't. and now we want freedom. <laughs> Here's a tweet from Gay Neoshill. I guess this counts as a circuit party, but the Pride <sighs> Island concert for Kylie Minogue was a ring of hell. Drunk, high, shirtless, muscle gays as far as you could see while it rained and they were drunkenly screaming the lyrics in my ear and spilling beer on me. Ooh, that sounds like a nightmare, I realize. Well, it makes me think that uh, one gay's hell is another gay's heaven. Ooh. I'm sure that there was somebody there who was enjoying Thriving. the sweaty, drunken Thriving. party that was Pride Island. I bet I have a friend that loves that. Yeah. I actually know someone. Yeah. You actually know someone, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, here's a tweet from Anthony Pesci. Pool party. Even worse is the gay beach, which is similar to a pool party, but lasts longer and it's harder to leave. That, okay. Y'all know I just moved from Los Angeles. Los Angeles is queen of the pool party. And what I learned real quick is you step into a pool party, which usually has a bar, and you have you a cocktail, and you can leave because there's a bar down the street, close by. You can leave. These beaches, driving to a beach in every major city is a hassle. And in LA, it it takes over an hour to get to Will Rogers. And once you are there, you are stuck there. And I'm not about that life. You're not about that life. You want to be able to escape. I have to say that also... Reese Beach here, the Queer Beach, okay. also takes like an hour to get to. We'll never and be there. <laughs> it's like a whole thing to get there and then leave and like you don't want to run out of booze mm. and food okay. and, you Well, know. God bless y'all making that yes. trek. So we have a tweet here from Scott Bixby. Musical Mondays at literally <coughs> any bar, unless you are actually Kelly O'Hara. You do not sound like Kelly O'Hara. <laughs> P.S.A. <laughs> Unless you're so a Broadway true. star, you don't, you know, God, you don't sound like people one. People really be giving you everything out there. Like, they do. And it's like, this is not an audition. It's like, not an American Idol. It's true. One of my gay hells is when you go to karaoke and you have that friend who is like the lead in the high school musical and they just cannot let it go and mm. they really want to belt it out and you're like, I'm just here to sing badly and get drunk. Like, I'm here don't to fail. Do this. Don't make me realize Thank failure you. is not welcome. Precisely. Mm. Let's take it to the timeline. Continue sending us your version of gay hell, but if you're feeling somehow, if you're feeling somehow a little hopeful this 2019, send us your version of gay heaven too, using the hashtag AM2DM. Hmm, what's your gay heaven? My gay heaven is sitting on my couch with my wife, surrounded by our cats. Mm, which I is love that. A very, very gay heaven. I love you that. You know? I love that. Yours? Mine is brunch on Saturdays. Oh, Saturdays. Be hungover. Mm, no, mm, mm. no work <laughs> hangover. Well, listen, up next, we are reading more of your tweets. Welcome back, y'all. It's time for Add Us, where we read your tweets throughout the show. Yes. Well, let's get into these. Yes. In response to Casey Newton's story about Facebook content moderators, Tradegram tweeted, I wonder if Twitter has something similar. Are we making Twitter content moderators' lives more difficult with every tweet we send? Ooh. Wow. Interesting. We should figure that one out. Let's call Casey Newton. And call this- Casey <laughs> Newton. Casey, get next Casey story. I'm, no long- I'm your editor, not Kara Swisher. Me. Go do the story. <laughs> I, I think that's a good idea. Kara's going to kill me. We asked what the wealthiest behavior you've witnessed is, and Rudy tweeted, 
I worked at a sporting goods store and some lady <laughs> bought seven North Face jackets and she said, I want one for every day of the week. Oh my God. I know. So like, not only do you know that this person <laughs> is wealthy because they can buy that many North Face coats, but they also have the closet space to store yes. coats. Also, and probably an assistant to carry all of those. That's, also that's an a lot of bags. Yes. So of baggage. Okay, yeah, girl, live your life. There's a lot to that one. Well, Lady Jenlin said, my uncle's girlfriend's parents would buy all new ceiling fans when the old ones got dusty. Just threw the old still working ones away. Madness. Wait. So they wouldn't even wash them no, off. Wouldn't even dust them down. Girl, that it's like two seconds. Yeah. It takes a long time getting new ceiling fans. Exactly. Because that requires staff. Maybe they had staff. I don't know. You but girls it's like are if, wealthy. I know, but it's like if you have the money, you just buy a whole new set of ceiling fans. Okay. Well, I'd be that, the one who would be like, let me get your like, you know, let leftovers. me get your old ceiling fans. Yeah. Well, y'all are out here th- living and thriving in 2019. Love really? that. Love really? that. Well, thank you to our guests, Nitty Prakash, Adam Klasfeld, Casey Newton, Lauren Hogg, Jordan Harb, Chantal Rochelle, and Bianca Lawson. And we'll be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day. Stay wealthy. Go to gay heaven. <laughs> See you.